This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. We have got a real ripper on the podcast for you today. It is Simon Hill, a.k.a. Plant Proof. So Simon is a nutritionist, a physiotherapist. He has a super successful podcast, Plant Proof, that I have been binge listening to nonstop. He's also got a blog. And on top of all of that, oh, he's also got a restaurant in Bondi, but he's just bought out a brand spanky new book called The Proof is in the Plants. I read it in just three days and it's a big book, my friends. It's unreal. He's unreal. In this chat, we really deep dive the book and all these amazing lessons. Like I, I learn about these new terms like eating stressed out plants and we talk about how we live in obesogenic environments. So if you are into health but you want to learn more about your own health and understand it and really optimize it, then this is the podcast app for you. I really hope you enjoy this chat with Simon Hill. And you know what? Go out and support him and get his book because it's unreal. Big love. Simon Hill, aka Plant Proof, I was really nervous to get you on because you interview people for a living and that freaks me out, interviewing you. <laughs> no, don't be silly, don't be silly. I've binge read your book three days and I saw someone did it in two, so I was a bit jelly mm. that I didn't quite win. What are you doing, Lols? Come on. <laughs> Three days. Really? <laughs> I couldn't put it down. Honestly, I started and I was like, I wonder what I'm going to uh, get from this because I'm a nutritionist as well. As uh, You've done a master's in mm, nutrition yeah. and you're a physio, right? Yeah. So initially physiotherapy and then sort of uh, stepped into the nutrition world after that. Right. But I felt like I was back at nutrition school again. I was like, oh, my God, I haven't thought about this for so mm. long. And I said this to you just before we came up here, I am 100% now so inspired to lean more into a plant-based diet. I, I reckon I'd be sitting at 70%, but now I'm like, no, let's pu- let's push this a little bit lower. I love that. I'm pleased to hear that. All because of your book, my friend. So first of all, you're also a Melbourneite. I Initially, I have to ask a really important question. I'm I'm afraid of the answer because I think I've figured out. Is it true that you go for the pies? I'm just having a nervous sip of, of Lola coffee here. <laughs> are you a Collingwood fan? You've done fan? your research. You've done your research. I'll give you that. You are a Collingwood We're fan. We're off to a flying start here. Um, I am a, a Collingwood supporter. I'm not sure whether I should be proud about that or not this year, uh, but we've had our fair fair share of success. So um, I am Collingwood true and true. So I'm a Bombers fan. Okay. So we're like proper old school. We are. The OG rivals, the rivals, right? So when I was learning about you being from Melbourne, your background in physiotherapy, I didn't know that you worked with AFL players. That was kind of mm. like... Your first. That's right. So I was in my second year of university. I did the the kind of 
the thing that you you want to do if you're looking for a job as a sports physiotherapist straight out of university and if you want to work in a top private practice and that was to go and volunteer. Yeah. And I went and volunteered at the Coburg Tigers at that time who were the VFL sort of feeder team to Richmond. Yeah. And so that was during university and then that got me, I guess, on the radar of some people that, that thought I was semi-okay at, at, Modest, at, I like at, it. at uh, being a physiotherapist. And really, I think a lot of that was just, I was, I was really able to relate to the players. A lot of them were my age or a little bit older and, and I found it very easy to sort of interact with them and, and, and learn about what they were struggling with and, and how to rehabilitate them. So that sort of worked to my advantage. And then when I finished uh, university, I was very fortunate. Paran Sports Medicine Center, I'm yes. not sure if you know that yes, one. Yes, I'm a Paran girl. Yeah, yep. so there's a, a, a center there called Life Care. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I guess, in the top probably two or three or four private practices in Australia if you want to, to work in, in sports physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And so I was... Very, very fortunate to be given a job there as a new grad. It was kind of unheard of, and I was the small fish in a very, very popular clinic. And and yeah, I went and worked there, and and at the same time was working with Richmond and still with their VFL team. And that was when uh, you might remember when Ben Cousins yes. left West Coast, had yes. a bit of time off, and then came to Richmond. So that's that's yeah. a, that's the time that I was there. How cool. And also being a Melbourne person, I'm like, AFL, like that's my, I don't know about you, I know you spent a bit of time in Texas as a kid, but like my memory of a kid is like getting to the footy on the weekend and being a part of that Melbourne culture. And so you're kind of like, I imagine going straight out of uni to this, well, also volunteering, but also like that'd be the dream, right? Like did you feel like? It was the dream. You know, some of the my best memories are Essendon Collingwood, Anzac Day, Savrocker, Maddie Lloyd. (laughs) I had 18 on my back, <laughs> you know, Maddie Lloyd. James Heard. So even though Essendon are a rival, I, over the years, because those those games meant so much to me, I actually have a deep appreciation for them and have a number of friends that that went for Essendon. So it was a kind of fun rivalry. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed watching the Collingwood guys and the, the, that Essendon team through that era was amazing as well. So, yeah. But you're right, it was it was special for me to all of a sudden go from watching as a spectator to now having conversations one-on-one and trying to help the players get the, the most out of their body. And, and, and as soon as you're in that environment, you know, at that time, I would say that I almost became a Richmond supporter. Yeah, of course. Because you get to know the players oh, so yeah. much and – and so you're going for them in every game and then when they play Collingwood, it's kind of, you're a little oh, yeah. bit torn. <laughs> That's fair enough though. That's fair enough. So so from here, you're kind of like doing, doing really well, but you've also got this fascination with nutrition, right? And you're like, what else can I add? But also at 15, your dad mm. went through something and you, you were kind of told, well, this is your genetic disposition as well. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Uh, my dad, who is a massive Collingwood supporter, so that's where I get it from. <laughs> and funnily enough, Same I should add me. to that, um, I have an older brother and kind of just to annoy dad and, and, and me, and this was in around 1995, Carlton won the flag and he decided to go against family tradition for the blues. And, and go for the blues and he still does to this day. They haven't won a premiership since then, so I'm not sure if that was a great decision. <laughs> uh, but yes, we... 
we used to do a lot of things on the weekend, father-son bonding type type things like people do, uh, whether it's with your father or your mother or your uncle or whatever. Um, these, these activities on weekends, I, I think back about them and, and have very fond memories. And one of the things we would do is go out to the Yarra Valley. Yep. No, really well. nice wine district. Yeah. And my dad loves loves red wine and he was very proud to teach us about red wine and learn about different vineyards and, and get some inspiration from the people making the wine. And so we would do that and, and on Sundays in particular, we would sort of choose a different route and go and visit different wineries. And he had a, an MGB convertible and it was fun. Like we would go go driving through these beautiful areas and it was it was a great time. And on this one particular day, it was just Dad and I, and we were heading back home. It was this sort of dusk time. Mm-hmm. The sun was going down. The day had been great. And then I started to notice that he was grimacing a little bit and he was uncomfortable. And I asked him if there was something that was wrong. And he said that he was experiencing some chest pain or tightness. And so he he then reassured me that it was okay and, and my dad is a doctor and academic side of, of the medical world and, and does research on type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. and cardiovascular disease. So since then I've spoken to him and he knew what was happening yeah. and, and sort of went into a bit of a state of denial about it and we proceeded to go home and he continued to reassure me that he was okay and we had dinner and we were we had two houses then one was in melbourne and one was in king lake mm-hmm. yeah king lake at that time anyway there was there was no it was it was quite remote there was no hospital nearby and uh, we had dinner and i went to bed and a few hours later i heard some noise in the kitchen and i can remember waking up thinking i, I had in the back of my mind that he he was experiencing a bit of pain earlier. I wasn't sure exactly what was going on, but I wanted to go out and see if he was doing okay. And when I came out, he was bent over. His his face was very pale. He was out of breath. He by that time had he was sort of making his way to the phone. Yeah. And he ended up calling the the triple uh, zero. And, mm-hmm. and speaking to the paramedics and putting the phone on to me, often they ask for someone else to describe what's happening. Yeah. And I remember describing to them what was happening and sort of asking him, what are you feeling? And explaining that he was out of breath and he was struggling and feeling fatigued. And it, by that time was getting pain into his shoulder. And they quite quite quickly said, look, well, we need to send a helicopter based on where you are in the nearest hospital and and what you're describing sounds like your dad's having a cardiac arrest. And so, I mean, at that stage as a 15-year-old, you hear cardiac arrest or heart attack and there was a lot of fear. Yeah, I probably would have been fearing more today because I know a lot more about it and how serious it was. But there still was a, a lot of fear and a sort of sense of unknown and my dad was 41 so he so wasn't young. he was young and he was he was just a typical australian dad yeah. you know like he wasn't sort of morbidly obese or even overweight like he might have been carrying a few extra kilograms and he was probably a bit overworked and a little stressed mm. but for all intents and, and purposes he was a, a a quite healthy young dad two young boys 
exercised reasonably regularly and had no history of, of any illness. Mm. So this kind of was all coming out of the blue. Sudden onset. Yeah. So we we really didn't expect this to happen at all. And, and as I said, like hours earlier, we were having a great day. Yeah. And so they the helicopter came and that was when probably my fear went to the next level because they scooped them off the floor or him off the floor and attach all of these heart rate monitors and oxygen and then wheel him off into the helicopter and and unfortunately I couldn't fit it was there was only enough room for for the paramedics and him and and the stretcher and so I trailed in a ambulance and by that time my my mother and my brother were at our other place in Melbourne and they made their way to the hospital that we were going to mm-hmm. and we we got to the hospital and after some period of waiting to find out how he was doing we we were told that they had saved his life and so we were very thankful for that mm-hmm. and really that was the the most important thing to us at the time was that and and so thank thankfully with the the medical resources we have in this country yeah. he he got a second chance and i've since found out that 60% of cardiovascular deaths are sudden cardiac death yeah and so that is someone without any clinically diagnosed symptoms having a heart attack and really just dropping dead within a few hours of that event mm-hmm. and so he was considerably lucky and and he's definitely made the most of his second chance which is great uh, but unfortunately that's not the case for everyone and when the the cardiologist spoke to our family to my dad and to my mom and and my brother and I and he'd taken my dad's history he had realized that my grandfather had also had a heart attack and this is not un- uncommon there's probably people listening who who have similar set of circumstances yeah. in, in their family and maybe it's not cardiovascular disease but perhaps it's a, a type of cancer or yeah. perhaps it's type 2 diabetes or something like that uh, or dementia and he he said to my brother and I and this is not bad advice by by any means but he said that my brother and I should be screened as we get older and you know that is good advice but what the conversation kind of ended there and there was no real explanation as to why they run in families and and as such my brother and I both sort of thought that our genetic fate was to follow in the footsteps of our father yeah. and that if if my grandfather had it and my my dad had it who seemed from the outside to be very healthy and was experiencing this at age 41, then soon enough in our life, we would maybe have to deal with something similar. And so that was quite a limiting belief, I think, in many ways. Yeah, but that's also, I'm sure a lot of people would be listening going, yeah, like they would expect, like it wasn't until I started deep diving your um, pod and listening to David Sinclair that I was like, oh, hang on, it's 20% genetic mm. and 80% like we get to have a say. How empowering to learn that, right? Yeah, that's huge. I think like, and, and we know that from studies of identical twins. Ah, uh, yeah, the Danish, yeah. can you talk about the Danish study, the Danish yeah, twins so study? Yeah, they so looked, they've looked at, at identical twins, the exact same genes and, and looked at 
what happens when they change environments? What happens to their their health outcomes? And that's it's from those studies that have been able to determine that around 80% of that health outcome is dictated by the environment, how you live and the actions that you take yeah. on, a, on a daily basis, which, as you say, is very empowering. And in fact, there's another study, and I speak about this in the book as well, that shows with the pets. I'm the not... dogs, I've got a note here about the dogs. <laughs> share it, share it. It's so good. So th- th- this, this study... I believe it was out of Sweden, yeah. uh, a couple hundred thousand dog um, and, and owner pairs. And they looked at what was the relationship between type 2 diabetes in terms of if, a, if an animal, if the dog had type yeah. 2 diabetes, did, did the owner have increased risk? And they did have significantly increased risk. You've probably got the percentage written down there, but I think it maybe was around 30%. And the yeah. so the... What that tells us is that because we know that type two diabetes is a lifestyle disease, yeah. largely. Yeah. And what that tells us is we we share our lifestyles with those around us, our family, including our including our pets. Mm. And so when when that the doctor originally explained to my brother and I that we would need to be screened and that this is running in the family, what I didn't realize at the time was that by and large, these diseases that we've normalized in our society and accepted, which we know other populations are not dealing with to anywhere near the extent that mm. we are. And these chronic diseases that are really robbing us of quality of life, even robbing us of years of life, they by and large are running in families because families are adopting the same lifestyles. Yeah. So interesting. And it's like a penny drop moment when I read that in your book. I was like, Oh my goodness, this just makes perfect sense. And you talk about a new term that I'm, it's new to me. You might think, oh, you're a nutritionist, Lolly. You should know this. But I love the way you wrote about we live in an obesogenic environment. Can you explain what that is a little bit? Yes. So I don't think it's collective willpower that has seen our health end up where it is today, a lack of collective willpower. I don't think that's the case. I think the environment is stacked against us in many ways. Yeah. And 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 so we we it's made very difficult for us to stay healthy. Yeah. Staying healthy is the the the, the harder option in the current environment. And and what I mean by that is particularly if you look at the food environment, mm. there are large transnational companies with huge budgets whose pro, whose priority is profits, not our health. And they are formulating foods that are irresistible. They're bliss point. Bliss point. Yeah. So they're hitting that perfect combination of fat, oil, sugar, and, and other additives to make them just com- completely irresistible and impossible to put down. And they're they're doing a great job of that because if you look at the the average Australian, forty two percent of the average Australian's calories are coming from ultra-processed foods. I, that blew my mind when I read that. And is in America like 58 or something? Yeah. Like that's pretty full on. And another thing that blew my mind is people are obsessed with the crackle of the Magnum ice cream mm. you wrote about. So it's a full sensory experience. And didn't you say like then Magnum had to change their recipe so that the crackle came back or something? Is that's that right? right? So they, they were 
going to step away from their formulation because when people were reading the Magnum, it was falling on their pants. Yes, and it was staying. They were getting some feedback (laughs) about that, so they thought, okay, we better clean up the the chocolate on the outside. We want it to be enjoyable, but we don't want it to stain someone's pants. Yeah, (laughs) and so they did reformulate, but as they reformulated, they lost the sound. And when yeah. they lost the sound, they quickly realized they lost, it was less, less irresistible. And so it just goes to show the extent to which the, the food scientists are working on, on really perfecting the formula to Big make term. them very hard to put down. And when, when you're making uh, a lot of your calories are made up of such foods, it's very hard for nature to compete. So the blueberries or the yeah. apple or the oranges, they're struggling to compete that natural sweetness is really struggling to compete with these hyper-palatable foods. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I, I, like, I've got a history of eating disorders, but then I, when I came out of it, you kind of binge eat a little bit. And the first thing I'd go for are those bliss point foods because and, and it would almost feel subconscious. Like you'd be shopping, thinking you're getting ingredients for dinner. Next minute you're buying a family-sized block of something that tastes like it's laced with something It's mm. that addictive. Uh, I also love the way you talk about in the book a few things. First of all, I love how you, you, you say like often research is funded by these big corporations where their goal is to make their not-so-healthy foods seem desirable mm. to us and that kind of leads into the environment that you were talking about before but also the five-star health rating. And right for this podcast, we were talking about one of my friends, David Gillespie, and he also says, no, do not mm. go by the five-star health rating. I love how you wrote about, wrote about how something that's high in sugar, companies will just be like, all right, we'll just jam some fiber in mm. there. Is that kind of what's going yeah. on? Well, it's it's what's called a compensatory system. And yeah. I don't think the average Australian understands that. What that means, to your point, is that the way the scoring works, it's zero stars to five. Yep. Now, it's also not mandatory, so you don't have to put this on your product. And that's why we see the average the average rating is around three, three and a half, because all the brands that are selling products that are zero, half, one, two, they just decide not to use it. Yeah. So that's the first thing. It's not mandatory. So all you're seeing is the products that are scoring highly actually using the label. Second is it's compensatory in that if you are jacking it up with a lot of sugar, that's considered a, a negative n- nutrient. But you can offset that and not lose points if you add what they call a positive nutrient, which is like fiber or protein. Crazy. And so we're losing sight. We've redu- It's reducing food to nutrients at a nutrient level and really losing sight of the whole package. Yeah, totally. And, and, and where are the source of our nutrients and what's coming along with them. And, and so it that 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 system was heavily lobbied by the food industry and and the the only way that it ever actually came to fruition was by making some concessions to to the point that where they were happy enough with it one of the other crazy parts of it is around sugar there's no differentiation between added sugar and naturally occurring sugar and so a lot of fruit just whole fruit if it was to be labeled would not get five stars how crazy is that, though? That's mind-boggling. Yeah, that's to me. And another, this brings me to the other, the uh, another pe- piece of 
a gem in the book is like, I'm gluten-free. So when I go to the supermarket, sometimes I'll find myself in the health aisle and looking at all the gluten-free things and I'm like, holy mackerel, like I can read and understand that that's not healthy because I mm. know how to read the back of a packet. But for the average human being, you might look at something that's gluten-free and be like, well, that's going to be the healthier option for me. And I love how you call out things that are labelled as often, sometimes vegan as well, gluten-free, um, even like paleo and keto, like all these like flash words doesn't always mean that they're full of whole ingredients. It can be still highly ultra-processed, like what you said. And the bit that blew my mind, the gluten-free industry is like, 22 US billion dollars. Mm. It's lucrative. Uh, this coffee is amazing, by the way. Oh, you like but, it? Yeah. Yes. The, <laughs> the, the gluten-free, we need to learn from what's happened with the gluten-free. Yeah. Uh, and there are people who genuinely need to avoid gluten. Yeah. And it is better for their health, right? And I do write about that in the book. But if, if you are avoiding gluten, what I want people to understand is that gluten-free whole grains are going to be a much better option than some sort of ultra-processed food that says gluten-free on the front. And so there's a term called the halo effect. Mm -hmm. And that's where these labels, these buzzwords on foods make a food seem like it's healthy for us. And gluten-free is one of those. And I suspect in 10 years, vegan will be another one where people are, are really sitting down and starting to, to think about the effect of the flood of vegan ultra-processed foods going yeah. into the market right now. And a lot of consumers go opting for them because they think they are the healthy option. Yeah. And so we have to be very wary of the food industry just pivoting and jumping onto the next thing and these foods seeming like they're healthy on the surface, but they're not really and you touch on this with when you touch on the weight loss industry as well, which is $200 billion yeah. worth, like mental. And I've been a victim to the weight loss industry. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get that protein bar because it's only got X amount of calories. It's got all this protein in it. But if you actually look at it, it's full of like hydrogenated oils or like stuff that's not good at all mm. for us. So the weight loss industry as well, that's got to be – Something like the, your whole book is more about like come back to whole foods anyway. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if you saw the bit. You sound like you've read every page perfectly, <laughs> so you probably have. Uh, the bit where I talk about the word diet. Yes. And yeah. this is my interpretation of it and and, and and I realize that other people have different opinions and um, that's completely okay. My take on on that word diet is I think the weight loss industry has really – is responsible for the stigma that's attached to that word. And they've made that word dirty in some ways. Yeah. When, when you think yeah. of diet, yeah. you think of diet as an adjective. It's yeah. a doing. It's a doing, right? Yeah. And, and that, I, I completely agree. Thinking of it that way can, can not be great for our mental health and usually does not lead to a sustained long, long-lasting life, life-lasting changes, right? Oh, absolutely. But if we... What I propose in the book, and I know this works for me, is to reframe that word and think of it as a noun yeah. rather than an adjective. So it's a thing. And if you look at the original origin of the word, which has sort of Greek-Latin origins, mm. it can be broken down, and it's not a direct translation, but it can be broken down to something along the lines of a manner of living. Yeah. And so it's describing more around consistent food dietary pattern that we're, we're adopting over the long term rather than something 
that is an adjective that we are doing for one or two weeks or a month. Oh, I love it. And it needs to be done. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've read somewhere as well that the word diet can be triggering for people from a mental health perspective if you've had an eating disorder or something like that as well. And I will um, pat myself on the back here. You know how you said it seems like I've read every page? No one can see this, but I have highlighted. I have got notes. It's incredible. It is. I've got my favourite pages. So I just wanted to like take full credit for that because I, and if anyone listening, and this is not to plug the book, but like I just love kind of like skilling up everything in life, whether it be human behaviour, learning about breath work. We were talking about a book downstairs. This is a really good book if you just want to skill up overall wholesome health and it's really digestible, pun the pun. Uh, I want to talk about um, every m- the majority of the studies that you've kind of deep dive and I love that it's so clinically researched and I love that that's kind of like your, I don't, this took you three years to write, right? Yeah, a little over three years. Yeah, so you've put the time in but um the overwhelming, I don't know where the quote is here, but everything that you seem to come across, it's like people thrive off 85% or more of plants in their diet and you reference the Mediterranean diet a bit. My boyfriend's Italian and he's like, I told you from the beginning we should be eating lentils, you know, and that's what I love about this. Like I have definitely fallen into the on the paleo wagon over the years because I was able to lose weight eating paleo. But really, and you talk about this in quite a few interviews, you're just pulling the crap out of your diet and that's why you, you, you're not inflamed anymore, you're feeling good. But really long term, and if we look at a diet as a noun, we need that 85% or more plant predominant, like in our or plant predominance in our diet, would you say? Yeah, there's there's a bit in there. I think firstly on the paleo diet, I absolutely believe that that moving to that from a standard Western diet is an awesome move. It's a great, it's, a, it's, it's an option worthy of consideration. There's not a lot of science on, on the paleo diet mm. in, in particular. The, the Mediterranean diet, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's probably one of the most researched dietary patterns out there. And we see the, the results are so consistent across the board. Yeah. The, the paleo diet is great because it removes ultra-processed foods. We were just yeah. talking about 42 to 58% of calories in an Australian or American diet coming from there. So that's amazing. Yeah. Where it falls down a little bit for me is the, the idea of, of mountains of animal protein totally. is – it's it's speculative. So where, what what our ancestors ate millions of years ago really is speculative. Yeah. So there is a lot of storytelling, which can be quite romantic, you yeah. know, but it's not really that scientific. And if you even if you dig into the anthropology and look at the sort of archaeological evidence, which I've done, because I really wanted to, like you, I wanted to understand that side. Yeah. And and what I came to to learn was that yeah certainly meat was part of the our ancestors diet and depending on where they lived and and what was available in that season and if they could find it if they could find it yeah. it would the amount in the diet would vary yeah and the the archaeological evidence that you know various sites have been dug up and there for many years there we would we would dig these sites up and see bone remains Yes. The problem is the plant foods, they decompose. So there was a a while there where a lot of the evidence, it was probably overstated the role of meat in the diet. But 
really a lot of this is is kind of irrelevant because it's very speculative at best. And if we think about our ancestors, their goals, their goals were to survive. Shorter lifespans. And to have kids, right? Procreate. Their goal was not wanting to live to 70, 80, 90 in good health and and being able to think clearly and being physically mobile and being able to do all the stuff that they love to do. So we have very different sets of goals today. Definitely. And I love that one of the things you write about is anti-aging. It's my, I'm 35, so I'm all about anything anti-aging. Sign me (laughs) up. And I was loving, obviously I'm a coffee fiend and the polyphenols, I was like, yes. And also I've seen you talk about... um, it's not as much here, but like in the past, I've seen you talk about a little bit about intermittent fasting, especially with David Sinclair as well. And I do that with coffee. And I was and reading in your books, I was like, shit, if he's against coffee, I'm screwed. Like, how we, this is this is a hallmark of my life. Like, well, I love. I it. can't be against coffee because the science is there to support yeah. it. And again, like, I there are certain that that can trigger some some people. I, I have posted about coffee before, and that can upset some people. Yeah. But I can only tell you what the science is showing. And the science shows benefit for, for coffee consumption. And, and you're right, it's thought to be polyphenol content. Yeah. But it's also thought that perhaps even caffeine has some some benefits as well. So the this the the over the overall science is pretty consistent there that there is some benefit from from having coffee. Uh, and not speaking of like flicking to something that most humans don't do well with, and I love that you wrote about your own experience with dairy, but being lactose intolerant. So you were 17 when you were like, yo, this doesn't really feel good for me. I was 19. I was at uni and I was studying nutrition. They're like, just play with an elimina- elimination yeah. diet and do a different thing each week while I was studying. And I was like, cool. Cut dairy out. And I was like, oh, is this what it feels like to not be bloated all the time? Can you talk, because you talk a little bit about most humans being lactose intolerant. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the that's actually the norm to be lactose intolerant. How crazy. And there are certain people who have a genetic adapt, they've adapted over time where their their families, their ancestors were perhaps exposed to a little more dairy over time and their genes adapted and they have lactose persistence, which, which means, which is the opposite of lactose intolerance. And what that means is when, when someone says they're lactose intolerant, it means that they have lower levels of lactase, mm-hmm. which is the enzyme that, that's required to, to break down and digest lactose. And so if you have lower levels of that enzyme, you end up experiencing some bloating and discomfort. Mm-hmm. People who have had this genetic adaption over time, they have sufficient levels of lactase. Mm-hmm. And so they can, they can digest dairy completely fine and don't have any symptoms at all. And... Yeah, in the book, I I, I write. I, I don't think I really write dairy off per no, se. It's no, kind no. of it's it's dairy is an, an interesting food group. It's so different. The, mm. There's so many different types as well. Uh, but I think the the biggest reason I think most people can dial their dairy down, if other than being lactose intolerant is the saturated fat content and it yeah. is, along with, with red meat, is the top two source of saturated fat yeah. in, in our diets. And I kind of go into, in Chapter 5, why that's important when we look at, at cardiovascular health. And you also talk about other great plant sources of calcium because I think people think, oh, well, 
I have to have my dairy to have my calcium. And mm. you really break down not just calcium but other minerals as well, you know, yeah. bone health. and Calcium's think- important, right? It is important for, for, for strong bones, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the and, and dairy is a very convenient source of calcium in that you can you can get 300 milligrams in in one glass. So it is providing a, a sort of quite quick large dose of, of dairy of, of calcium. However, we know that it doesn't just just safeguard you against weak bones. You know, yeah. so they're, they're the populations that consume the most dairy have the highest rates of fracture. Now that's that's not to say that dairy is causing the fracture. It's just saying that it's not the be all and end all when it comes to strong bones. And the it, building strong bones is a team effort. You have to get enough calcium. If you're not having dairy, I suggest people have some form of fortified plant based milk. Or if they're having tofu, there are a lot of tofu's that are set in calcium, mm-hmm. and and that usually along with a nice diverse diet will get people above around 700 milligrams, which seems to be the lower limit that you would want to be hitting. Mm-hmm. And and in in addition to that, yeah, there are other nutrients like vitamin D and and sunshine and and protein is very important for for strong bones, as is vitamin B12. And then, you know, our lifestyle is very important. Are we exercising and doing resistance exercising and maintaining a healthy body weight? So, yeah, you're right. The, 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 Dairy is a, a convenient source of calcium, but it's not the only way to to build strong bones. Oh, I could just ask you a million and one questions. So um, <laughs> I just want one thing that I really was shocked to learn, oysters and mussels and not having pain recept. Is that mm. – and so some people that are more plant-based – they're okay with the odd oyster on my yeah. Kids? So I put the book. I, I put that in the book because I realised that some some people will be reading the book who are vegan and are coming into it from an ethical stance. Correct. The book was was by no means written just for vegans, but mm-hmm. but I understand that 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 audience will read the book, and so often I'm asked around supplements or nutrients of focus. I call them, and there are some important ones that I go through in the book. We just spoke about calcium, but mm. You know, vitamin B12 and iodine and zinc and Mm -hmm. selenium. And like all diets, diets need to be appropriately planned. So a big part of me writing this book was not just around what, what foods do we want to eat less of and more of, but what what nutrients do we need to be really aware of so yeah. that we are optimizing it and getting best results? Mm. You know, we want people to to thrive and feel great yeah. for as long as possible. Uh, and so the oysters and mussels bit that I put in there, yeah. really the only reason I put that in there is because they are so nutrient-dense. Yeah. And they are very rich in B12. They're very rich in omega-3s, so DHA and EPA. Mm-hmm. They're very rich in zinc, selenium, mm even iron. So yeah. a lot of these nutrients of focus, these these guys are, are packed with. And so from a, uh, a pain perspective, mm. as you mentioned, they have no central nervous system and no brain. Yeah. So as far as science has been able to, to unearth or uncover or study to date, mm. there is no reason to believe that they can experience pain. And so, so there is a set of of vegans, and they they are often called Austro vegans. Yeah, new word for me. <laughs> yes, and it was actually a new word for me when I was researching this. And they they will include oysters and mussels in their mm. diet. And 
why is it important? Well, I think if if someone for for some reason was struggling to appropriately plan their diet, and let's say they were inconsistent with taking vitamin B12 supplement, mm-hmm. or they didn't want to take a vitamin B supplement, then it's good for them to know that they, those are options, and they 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 are still within their sort of value system if they've decided to go down that route. Mm. Totally. I love it. Oh, you could just say whatever you want. I'll be like, yes. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning so much from you. And after reading the book, I feel like you're solidifying everything. And I love uh, that you've got kind of like you, there's a section of the book where it's called like making the shift. Cause like it can be a little overwhelming when you read something and you're like, okay, I want to, I'm going to do this. And oh, but it's a bit too hard, basket. I'll start next week or I'll start after my friend's birthday or whatever. And you make it really simple. You've kind of got these eight principles. Mm. A few of my favorites are the fiber obsession one. And I've binged listened to your five episodes with Dr. B. Am I allowed to call him Dr. B? Yeah, call him Dr. B. And um, I was like, oh my God, I'm not like. Fiber, so simple, but such a, it sounds like quite a game changer when it comes to overall health. Uh, and the other one that I love is, and you've touched on this earlier, is um, you talk about like when you focus, look at food versus looking at like the macronutrients to look at the whole food. And I think that's quite empowering when you start to click out of how much of this is and this is in it versus let's look at the ho- the food from a whole and kind of get more of that in. Can you kind of break those two principles down a little bit? Yeah, so let's start with fiber. Yeah. So fiber kind of covers, there's two principles in there. One is about being fiber obsessed and protein aware. That's principle uh, two, I believe. Yeah. And principle three is around diversity and the yep. importance of diversity. And they both kind of tie back to fiber. So firstly, Let's think about the amount of fiber. The The average Australian is getting around 18 grams, 20 grams, depending on the study that you look at, per day, which is okay. It's a little better than the United States, but it's far short of the 28 to 38 grams a day that is the minimum that an Australian adult should be consuming for risk reduction of chronic disease. And in fact, when we look at the, the studies looking at chronic disease, particularly cardiovascular disease, when you when you look at the the risk curve, the risk reduction continues as fiber goes up and up and up and up, and there actually doesn't seem to be an upper limit, which mm. is, is is quite incredible. And there are various studies showing that at least fifty grams or up a day offers significant protection. Wow! Now I'm not suggesting someone does that overnight. No, it would be like throwing an atomic bomb. <laughs> You'd know <in> about a- <laughs> it. <laughs> so. Uh, you, you, you are going to want to go low and slow yeah. on, on that and, and, and slowly build it up. The, the reason why fiber is important, there, there's, there's two main categories of fiber, insoluble and, sol- and soluble. The insoluble fiber is what keeps us regular. Mm-hmm. It, it decreases the, it, it decreases co- the contact time between any, any kind of harmful or carcinogenic compounds in our food and our digestive tract. Mm-hmm. And it does that by increasing the, sorry, decreasing the transit time. It moves food yeah. thro- through our digestive tract faster. I call it your intestinal broom. Yeah. Like just imagine a broom cleaning everything out. Yeah. So if you're, <laughs> if you have any, any type of carcinogenic compound, let's say heme iron, for example, yeah. which has been shown or, or, uh, you know, 
nitrates in processed meats. Right. So example. if you're just getting ham from the supermarket. Yeah. These go. these are moving through the digestive tract faster in a high fiber diet. Mm-hmm. Now, ideally they're not they're not really in the diet too much those foods or they're yeah. de-emphasized, but having a, a high fiber diet from that perspective helps. And the second type is the soluble fiber. And this is the really, really interesting type of fiber. Mm. This is like fertilizer for the good gut bugs. Mm. And it's it's interesting because often we've been we've been sort of sold this idea that you can just take a fiber supplement. Yeah. And there are some okay fiber supplements that are blends and have a few different types of, of fiber. Yeah. But Psyllium husk, for example, is kind of one type of prebiotic fiber. Yeah. But here's the thing. All different plants have different types mm. of prebiotic fiber. This fiber feeds different species of bacteria in our gut. We have trillions of bacteria in our gut mm. and probably around a thousand species. Those species have different taste buds, just like mm. we do. And they have different preferences for the the prebiotic fiber that they feed on. And so the prebiotic fiber that's in artichokes is different to asparagus, is different to banana. They they vary. And so each of these foods is bringing something different to our microbiome. And that's why you're all about like heaps of different, like you're really into varied. Like is it something like trying to eat 40 different, like you've got quite a high number. I was like, holy mackerel. Yeah, there's, I I had a challenge in there, which is called the Plant Proof 40 Challenge. It includes dry herbs and spices. So it kind of seems like a bit higher than, than, than it is in reality, because some of those are sort of quite quick and easy to add to your meals. Uh, But over the week, if you're, if you're having 30 unique plants plus 10 herbs and spices, that's 40 total. Doable. That's doable, right? And and I found through my community, people really love that challenge. And what happens is if there was one single thing to focus on, if you focus on that alone, it straightens up your diet overnight to a very evidence-based diet because Mm -hmm. it automatically makes you consume more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. And all the phytochemicals, all the different good stuff. And it's crowding out ultra-processed food. Those foods are filling you up, so you're going to eat naturally less ultra-processed foods. So the, the key thing is that as we're feeding these different gut bugs, mm-hmm. they reward us. It's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. So we look after them by feeding them a diverse range of plants. Mm-hmm. They're all getting fed. They're all proliferating and growing stronger. And then they produce compounds that benefit us, both locally in the gut and downstream. Mm-hmm. They decrease inflammation. So anti-inflammatory compounds. They improve our gut lining. They decrease inflammation downstream, which we know affects mood yeah. and, and depression. They, the, the connection between the gut and the brain is talked about a lot oh, now, yeah. and it is such a real thing. Yeah. There's, there's a nervous system connection, but there's also this connection through the compounds that our gut bugs are creating and the effect that that has down, down throughout the body. So the, the main take-home point there is a diversity of plants yeah. is crucially important to a healthy diet. I love it. You've inspired me so much. Speaking of plants, can we talk about stressed out plants? Because that was a new concept to me. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So this actually comes from some of David Sinclair's work. Yes. And he talks about xenohormesis. Yeah. Hormesis is kind of that that saying of what, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Yeah. 
And so he he's big on this idea that when you are buying plants that are a little more stressed out, and by by that it means grown in less than perfect conditions and more sort of that biodynamic or organic type of condition where it's not a perfect line of everything and the plant really has to fend for itself. And as the plant's fending for itself, it has to produce more of these phytochemicals mm. that help defend the plant from from bugs and insects and and any sort of uh, potential threat. Yeah, those phytochemicals are thought to have offer significant benefit in our body. So xenohormesis, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, is saying that that plant is basically under some. It is under some sort of stress. And as it is stressed, it's producing these compounds, which makes it a more nutrient-dense offering. Yeah. And we do see that. There are there are a few studies looking at organic versus conventional foods. Yeah. And probably the, the main difference seems to be antioxidant content mm-hmm. within them. So it's a I put that in the book because I think it's interesting. So and interesting. it's also consistent with what what we see in Okinawa yes. in Japan. Yes. Where they are one of the blue zones with a very high number of, of people reaching 100 or over. I love when you talk about blue zones. Take it away. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Okinawa uh, in Japan mm-hmm. and Sardinia in Italy and Ikaria in Greece and Nicoya in Costa Rica and Loma Linda in California, five blue zones. Mm-hmm. These were identified by Dan Butner who wrote a book called Blue Zones, mm-hmm. fantastic book, and he did that with National Geographic. Mm-hmm. And really he was interested to learn about these populations that have incredible health and longevity. These are people that are dying of old age. They're not dying of a heart attack or certainly not having a heart attack at age 41. Mm. And if you ask them what they, when, when would they like to retire – Right, you ask these people when they would like to retire, and most of them have never heard that question. Wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and that's because for them, they spend their days doing what they love, mm. and 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 they see themselves doing that until the day that they die. And so, this is a very interesting group of people. That's one of the commonalities. They also all all share a very similar diet. Their diets are plant predominant or plant exclusive. Yeah. So even where they're eating animal products, they're not the hero of the plate. Mm. Like we, we've we kind of made a, a, a habit out of here. They are, they are less of a focus. They're de-emphasized. Mm. For example, in Okinawa, they have meat probably five times a month and it's about the size of a deck of cards. Yeah. And they're getting most of their calories on a daily basis from sweet potatoes and, and other foods like that. But they all do vary a little bit. And and the Sardinians, for example, they eat a little bit more dairy than, than some of the other groups. Mm-hmm. And then in Loma Linda, some of them have a plant-exclusive diet. But the commonality is that overall, there is a foundation of these whole plants in their diet. What else do these guys do? They oh, the family connection the I love that great. you talk to, and that again that sense of purpose. Mm. And I think here it's very different. I don't think we, I know like you and I are very purpose driven people, but um, if you like zoom out and look at our culture, it's like very much like the grind, the nine to five, and then it's like I don't know. It's like 
even I, I'm reading another author's book at the moment in, in prep and it was like, do the work, get home, pour a glass of wine, you know, have your indulgent thing while you're watching The Voice or whatever it is. And then it, it's this weird kind of like treadmill that you're on. Whereas this book and what you're describing with Blue Zones, it's much more purpose-driven. It's It feels like there's, I don't know how to say it, less cucker, like there's less mm. cr- like junk yeah, in there's general. A, there's, they, they're very in touch with like what what is the meaning of their existence? Yes, they, yes. And they wake up, and they can they can probably uh, many of them can describe that. Yeah. What, what are they sort of contributing to their family or to their community? Yeah. And in in Japan, they call that the ikigai. And there's yeah. actually a book that that is written on that. If someone wanted to to read more about purpose, and and that's a great book to to sort of get you thinking about your own life's purpose, and <sighs> and it doesn't have to be something you know, crazy far-fetched, mm. the, some, of, some of them, their, their purpose is, is around their family and they, they, they get that sense of meaning that they need from the, the way they're looking after their, their family. So yeah. it's different. It's not, it's not all some sort of career aspirational type purpose. It, it can be family-oriented and it will be, it'll be individual. Yeah. Um, but that's a great book for, for people to read. They, they also do regular low-level exercise. Yeah. Oh, you said, I've heard you say like only sit down for like 20 minutes a day or something? They would rarely sit for more than 20 minutes in one sitting. Gotcha. Which is a kind of sign that they're just always a little bit on the go. Yeah. Whereas we, and I think exercise is amazing and strength training and and all of that stuff, it's it's incredible. But what we tend to do is the 45 minutes or the hour and then sit down for the rest of the day. Totally. And so we can, the idea of this is let's look at what they're doing. What are we not doing that they're doing? And how can we kind of nudge a little closer to, to, to doing what they're doing and then hopefully experience the same health benefits that they mm. have? So I think that's, that's just, just giving us uh, a, bit of inspo. a bit of inspiration yeah. around not sitting down all day. Totally. And I love, there was another thing, I think in the, uh, it's another Japanese saying that you write about where you push the plate away at 80% full. Mm. Whereas I know, I think it's the way I was brought up as a kid, but like I polish off a plate. Mm. Like, I, and it's, it takes me a real, like I have to be very present and, and mindful when I'm eating to be able to go, oh no, I'm, I'm full now. Otherwise I'm just like a steam train and I'm like quickly consume. Yeah. Harahachi B, I think. Thank is, you. And Thank if you. there's a Japanese listener, they'll probably be able to correct that. <laughs> uh, but I gave it a go. That is that is correct. So they're very mindful. Of course it takes a little time for our body to understand that it's full. So mm. so pushing the plate away at eighty percent full is a nice way of not over consuming. And I find in my own personal experience, getting away from screens and thinking about the food as sort of cuckoo as it sounds does also stop you from overeating because I, if, if you're staring at the TV or on your phone, you can shovel down a lot of food really quickly <laughs> and all of a sudden you, you've, you've been scrolling and you're like, wow. I've just yeah. eaten that entire meal in five minutes. But how nice is when you do the opposite? Like I know you're into quite a lot of music. I stole some music off your Insta page. I was like, oh, <laughs> Ben go. Howard, I'll yes. listen to that. Uh, but for me, like I'll, sometimes we'll put some music on, cook together, mm. and it becomes 
and again, this is going to sound woo-woo, but like very present, very mindful, almost spiritual because it's like, well, how lucky are we that we're, I live in Byron Bay, like, and I'm mm. buying my ingredients from the farmer's market, like. It's incredible. Right? The, it sounds woo-woo and sounds cuckoo because of where our society is today. Yeah. But if if we look at these other populations, it's not woo-woo. No. This is what they're naturally doing. They are slowing down and they're they're showing a greater appreciation to their food. They are more mindful. So as woo-woo as it is, and I'm definitely, I, I, I probably would have heard that 10 years ago and thought, this is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I have definitely come to learn that that definitely slowing down to before you eat is just so important. Yeah, I, definitely. That's to now that feels like a no-brainer to me. And also, if you're if you're a little sort of agitated or something's frustrated you, I know for me that's not the right time to eat. My digestion is just nowhere near as good. It's yeah. much better to to sort of have a twenty or thirty minute walk, some some deep breaths, and then eat later for sure. Big time. I'm a big believer in biophilia, like getting out into nature, reconnecting with nature, and then coming back to whatever the, whatever the thing is that I need to face, or that's when I can make time to eat or prepare food. There's this last bit. I could talk to you all day, which I know you, you already know that. But um, in the conclusion, I love that you say you have the power to decide what you put on your plate and you're really gentle with transition as well, which I love because, as we touched on before, it can be a bit daunting when you first are like, okay, I want to make all these changes and there's a bit of guilt if you've still got a bit of something in the diet that may not be the best thing for you or the planet. So I love that you're gentle with that transition, but I love that you're empowering us to all realise that we actually get to choose what we put on our plate. How cool is that? It's amazing. Right? And, and, and I, it's not about perfection. And no. that's one of the principles. Don't let perfection be the enemy of good. I think anyone that is is thinking about dialing down their animal products, dialing down ultra-processed food, it doesn't matter what the extent of that is. Just thinking about that and making whatever changes make sense for you, you're part of the solution. Big you're not time. part of the problem. And so the one of the key messages I wanted people to realize is there's 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 no point striving for perfection and doing something that lasts two weeks. Yeah. You find the level of commitment that works for you and find the, the changes that you can make that suit your personal circumstances that only you really understand. Mm. Only you understand your personal circumstances. And so I hope the reader connects with the information in there, makes the changes that are right for them, and then is able to sustain them into the long term. And that's the goal. Yeah. You, my friend, are such a legend. There is so much I wanted to talk to you about. I'm going to make sure that I mention Eden in the show notes, which is if anyone's in Bondi, your incredible restaurant where the book launch was last week I saw. I heard about this delicious mushroom pulled pork recipe. Yeah, the curry was great. Yeah, and and someone said like a Thai fish cake that obviously wasn't a fish cake. That's right, yeah. Really good. It was from a uh, chef in Byron Bay, actually. Yeah. He gave me the recipe. His name's Adam Guthrie, so shout out to him. Yeah. Um, I'm very jealous. Amazing recipe. Well, he's in Byron, so if, if you're up there, I'll get yeah. him to, uh, to drop some of those over. Yes, please. I'm going <laughs> to hold you to that one. Uh, Simon Hill, you are such a dream to chat to. I put a call out on my Instagram and asked what people would like to know. And honestly, this is the, the most questions were, is he single and his voice <laughs> is amazing? And you've got such, honestly, like 
honest, as a podcaster and someone I study um, voice because I've studied acting, you have been blessed with a wonderful voice, okay, my friend. Thank you very much. Just, thank you. <laughs> no, seriously, as I started researching, I was like, oh, my God, it's so calm. You need your own. You know how Matthew McConaughey's got the calm? I He's know, on the yes. yeah. calm app. I have been told by quite a few people that yeah. they put me on at night. Yes. And they fall asleep. And I'm not sure if that's a compliment. <laughs> Take it as a compliment. It's super, because I think it's it's low, it's grounded, it's calm, and it's Aussie. So it's like really chill to bed. So anyway, it's a compliment. You've got a wonderful you. voice. You've got a wonderful book. I'm going to put all the details in the show notes. And can you please sign my book Absolutely. after this part? You're a legend. Thank thanks you. Thanks for the coffee. Thank you. That's a wrap on another episode of Fearlessly Failing. As always, thank you to our guests. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Yummo Lollaberry. This potty, my word for podcast, is available on all streaming platforms. I'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and comment. And of course, spread the love. Spread the love.